This is episode 27 of the Strength Running Podcast with three times Rocky Raccoon 100-mile champion and course record holder, seven times Western States 100-mile top 10 finisher, three-time winner of the Leadville 100-miler, and the official officiator of the unofficial Leadville Beer Mile, Ian Sharman. Last year, a friend of mine invited me up to Leadville, Colorado. It was the day before the start of the infamous Leadville 100-mile trail race, arguably one of the most difficult trail races in the world. None of the race is under 9,000 feet altitude. It's brutal. And so we were there to meet a runner and that my friend was working with on a project, but I had no idea who this runner was. Well, he turned out to be none other than Ian Sharman. Ian won Leadville in 2013 and 2014, and a day later, after I met him, would become the 2016 champion. So we talked for a little while at this coffee shop, and then we did something that I haven't done since college. We attended a beer mile. This was on a stretch of this mountain dirt road up in Leadville where runners ran 200 meters down and 200 meters back, pounded a beer, and then they did that four more times. And Ian was the official. It was at that point that I really started to like Ian. He's fun. He doesn't take himself too seriously. I mean, come on, the guys run a 240 marathon in a Spider-Man costume. And on top of that, he's a hell of a runner. He's here today to talk about his training, his recent calf injury, and his recent PR in the marathon, which was on this crazy downhill course with more than 5,100 feet of elevation loss. This is a different conversation about how one of the best ultra runners in the world approaches their training and how they have fun with the sport of running. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the show, Ian. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, it was nice to, to meet you last year. And uh, as we discussed, we've got some fun things to talk about today. Yeah, there's, there's three things I really want to talk about today. First and foremost is your recent marathon PR on a net downhill course. I'd also like to talk about racing and costumes. That'll be that'll be a fun <laughs> one, and your recent calf injury. So uh, let's start with the the really exciting news. You just ran a big marathon PR. I think you surprised yourself a little bit with your performance. Can you can you tell us what happened there? Sure. Yeah. So I, I kind of uh, I do like marathons. I've done over a hundred of them, um, although I mainly focus on the longer stuff. And uh, the last time I got a, a PR was two thousand and nine. So it's not like I haven't tried to, to break that since then. I just haven't really had a really solid training block of just focusing on that. So um, I thought if I'm going to do it, why not really go for it in a, a slightly crazy race where it looks super fast. So the race that I did is called the, the Run Revel Mount Charleston Marathon. And it's a net downhill from uh, kind of like this ski resort almost uh, outside of Vegas into Vegas itself. So it starts at seven and a half thousand feet finishes at two and a half thousand feet. So, um, you know, for, even for a trail race, that's a pretty big downhill to get a 5,000 foot, almost nonstop downhill. And, um, I just thought this seemed like a, a fun challenge to go for. And, uh, amusingly is it, because one of the people I was coaching, he did one of the other races in this series. And I saw just how much downhill there was in the one they have outside Salt Lake city. And I thought, why not? Yeah. I, I like downhills. They're fun. They tend to, to suit me pretty well. And, uh, it's a chance to go a bit quicker. So, Back in, in 2009 on a, a normal course, I ran 2.32. And uh, with this one, I, until the injury, I was hoping to go under 2.20, which was a you know super ambitious goal, but I thought it was just about possible. 
And then I, uh, and we can talk about this in a minute, I, I got a calf injury throughout all of March that meant I didn't really run at all. And then this race was the end of April. So I had one month of being back at it as normal um, to, to capitalize on things. So it didn't feel super fast, but I did feel like I'd done good strength work for the, for the downhills that was really specific. So in the end, I ran uh, 221 and, and managed to, to take 11 minutes off my best time. So I definitely think of that as a, a PR with an asterisk, but uh, still, it's the quickest I've run a marathon. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, so just so our readers really understand, uh, not our readers, our listeners, understand how much elevation drop was in this race. It was over 5,100 feet. You could almost run from Denver down to sea level just over the course of this marathon. So uh, that is, to me, that that is such an incredible elevation drop over 26.2 miles. What What did that feel like when you were running? Is it is it aerobically challenging or, or do you just feel like you were uh, pounding your legs the whole time? It felt more like a kind of an ultra to some degrees rather than just a marathon because normally with a marathon, yeah, most people are trying to pick the flattest, fastest course they can with no wind and perfect weather. And this uh, had altitude for one thing, seven and a half thousand feet slows you down quite considerably. Um, and then um, Vegas is typically quite hot. Luckily, on race day, the high was about 70 in Vegas, while two days later it was in the 90s. So even that would have made quite a big difference. Um, but I would say it just felt very different because aerobically, the first half was very easy. I definitely felt like my effort level was a little bit lower than it would normally be to run that that far. But because of the pounding you get from all that downhill, it was about 3,000 feet of downhill in the first half and about 2,000 in the second half. Uh, I knew that I had to to kind of stay within myself just a little bit to make that sustainable and minimize any slowing down at the end, particularly because the last six miles were a lot flatter um, um, and even more so the last three or four miles where there's even one of those miles that was an uphill. So um, it yeah, just a totally different kind of mentality to normal. Instead of thinking about getting the effort level appropriate of how it feels and heart rate and, and power and things like that. It was about just staying a little bit within myself and I could actually chat to the, as a lead cyclist and I was able to chat to him for bits of it, which I probably wouldn't be able to do after the first few miles in a normal marathon. Um, but uh, then it was more the second half. It aerobically starts getting harder and harder. The heart rate's getting a bit higher, but that's being counteracted by the fact that the altitude element is coming out of it as well. So when you get lower down and you're below 5,000 feet, it's a lot easier than it was in the first half. So I uh, I felt like the effort level was going up almost constantly throughout um, just to try and maintain the same kind of pace. And, and the pace definitely dropped off a lot in the last five miles because of it being a lot flatter. And in fact, when it was only 100 feet per mile downhill um, for a couple of bits, it felt almost like it was dead flat compared to the 200 feet per mile that I'd had for the first 20 miles. Yeah. What do you know? happen to know what your splits were like, you know, say for the first half and the second half? Yeah, it was about 108 for the first half and 113 something for the second half. So there, there was a slowdown there, but both of those are quicker than my PR for a half marathon. So I'm still pretty happy that uh, that I was able to to do those kind of times. And and that was really the last 10k. The last five five six miles was where that time varied. Up up until about mile 20 21, it was fairly even. So I think it was like a uh, five twelve average or something to halfway, a five fifteen average to 20 miles, and then the last. 10k was barely under six minute miles because of that that uphill mile which is also into the wind um but still i would say it's about the perfect conditions you could have on a course like that uh, and one thing that i could kept thinking about given there's both nike and adidas are doing um sub two hour marathon projects was 
this is the course to do it on. If you can get a good weather day, this is the exact place to do it. And, and really, it's no more contrived than what they're trying to do with paces, breaking the wind and various other things. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is a course where a 203 marathoner could go under two hours and that would be kind of cool but also they they'd have to train for it specifically it's not the same as a, a flat marathon and a lot of people end up doing super fast first halves and then a lot of walking in the second half because their quads are just completely trashed so that was the thing that i was trying to be very mindful about and also the reason why their the effort level couldn't be too high in that first half right now that brings up a good point how do you train for a downhill marathon that has such a significant elevation drop now i know your your training wasn't ideal you got injured in march but you know what specific things do you do in training to, pre to prepare for this type of elevation change Pro two two things are the, the main part of it and one of them was power hiking with a weight vest which i i incorporate as a big part of training for ultras anyway with the mountains so when you've got 20,000 feet of, of elevation gain within a hundred miler, for example, you've got to have strong legs and uh, people tend to slow down a lot towards the end because their legs get very trashed. So it really helps to have the ability to hike all day long. So I was doing that with a, either a 10 or a 20 pound weight vest for just one or two miles a day. And luckily, even during the calf injury, I was still able to hike. So I did uh, a pretty hard hiking month during that, uh, that period of injury, which wasn't causing it any problems in terms of healing the injury. So that was really important for just building a little bit more leg muscle um, in a way that was very sustainable. So unlike doing like a, a weight session in the gym where you're you're doing it more power based and, and with as much weight as you can, this was much smaller amounts of weight, but with hills so that it was specific to running and hiking because of the fact that it involves a hiking motion as well as a bit more weight to just create a bit more of that strength work, but in a uh, in a kind of endurance way rather than a pure all out strength method. So I'd, I'd think I'd liken it to kind of um, active recovery basically so active recovery that just has a little element of a tiny bit of strength every day that adds up rather than one or two strength sessions a week that you then have to recover from that's an interesting way to go about things did did you get in the gym at all for any more traditional type of lifting workouts or was it all yeah, just a little weighted? bit and, and that's something i'd normally do but it's more kind of core and upper body and not particularly heavy weight so kind of 15 minute sessions two or three times a week but not really focusing too much on the legs because I felt like the weight vest hiking and the running was doing enough for the legs and I didn't want to harm that. Plus, when I had the calf injury, I really couldn't do anything too intense on, on my lower body anyway. So the, the hiking was about the limit of that. Um, and then the second part as well that I, I'd mentioned about uh, strengthening the legs is, is downhill speed work. So there's always a fine line here between something that is going to break down the muscles and then take too long to recover. So it's too much of a stimulus and you don't benefit from it because you lose out on training. Um, and also you have a much higher chance of getting injured combined with the idea that you've got to still strengthen the legs and get used to running downhill fast. If you're going to do a, a downhill marathon, you've got to get your legs used to doing the same kind of thing. You've got to have that specificity. So one of the, the training sessions I did is I live in uh, Bend, Oregon, and uh, the nearby mountain is about 20 miles away. And it's particularly 10 miles that is just a road running downhill at the same kind of gradient as this race. So it was a, a 2,000 foot downhill in 10 miles. So I ran up it and then I ran down it pretty fast to to strengthen the legs and just to test how that would feel. And, and it also had a little bit of elevation there because it goes up to about 6,000 feet at the top of that uh, that run. So I was trying to do stuff that was specific to the race as well as 
sustainable kind of strength work but it's always a fine line of what is going to be a bit too much and might help maybe in a power sport but not so much an endurance sport like this and also what is likely to cause an injury uh, and the injury that i got was nothing to do with uh, the training i was doing downhill it was just a uh, there's a 10 mile trail race and there was a a tiny little uphill that was a bit sharp and i just pushed too hard for two steps pulled my calf so uh, uh i <laughs> the, the thing that should have been not too difficult for injuries is what injured me and uh, all the stuff i was doing that was much more likely to cause a problem was actually fine for me but that's also because i know that my legs withstand downhills pretty well so um you know there's no there's no one size fits all kind of methodology for that yeah absolutely now for me i mean there's there's probably two workouts that will incur an enormous amount of muscle damage. One is maximum intensity sprinting. So try run, try running as fast as you can, you know, true speed development type work. And then there are downhill workouts. Downhill workouts are brutal. They really introduce a lot of eccentric muscle contractions. And that's what primarily causes all the soreness that runners experience when they run a race that's a net downhill course, or they simply run a lot of hills in their training. So if anyone listening is going to try some downhill workouts, uh, you know, use the Elmer's rule, a dabble do ya. You can only start with, um, you know, very short repetitions or, or something like that. Uh, but make sure you start gradually. Exactly. You've got, to, you've got to ease into it. And in particular, it's much better for a runner, given that we're more focused on endurance typically than just pure power, um, to be able to do kind of a long run that has lots of downhills, but there are more gentle efforts. So it's not really high impact at any given point and just eat, build that up over time than it is to do super fast maximum intensity downhills so I, I did a little bit of both because i wanted to be able to run as quick as i could really in, in the marathon but um it, it's really important to to not just start off running super fast downhill speed sessions otherwise you're very likely to get injured or at the least be kind of limping around for several days afterwards and lose out on some training yeah, definitely. Now, do you do anything during the race to try to mitigate the muscle damage that that you were experiencing? What what's what was your approach there? The the main thing was just trying to be very conscious about my form. Because as soon as you start getting worse form, firstly, you lose some efficiency there uh, and you're going to be wasting energy, but also um, you can land harder. So when you're running a, a road in particular downhill, it's very easy to overstride. And if you overstride, you're going to have a straighter leg and your knee won't be as, as much of a cushioning force like a spring. So I was trying to keep my cadence up enough that I wouldn't accidentally overstride. But, you know, over the course of, of two plus hours, it's difficult to, to perfect that the whole time. So and particularly when your legs get uh, tired, it's harder to, to maintain that. So I just had to keep reminding myself to keep checking in with how my form was going and trying to to minimize the impact while maximizing the speed, um, which is something that I would do in the same in an ultra. If I'm near the end of, a, of any race, I, I'm very conscious that once your legs get tired, it's very easy to start having that kind of zombie shuffle or just losing the the strong athletic powerful stride that you have at the beginning of any race so uh, it was more just checking in on that and, and trying to make sure that i wasn't going to waste energy basically or cause too much impact force on my legs right i remember my my best marathon was at the philadelphia marathon and the last two or three miles my main goal besides trying to hold on for dear life to my to my goal pace was to maintain good form and it's so difficult when you are fatigued. And I think it goes beyond just your physical fatigue. It's your mental fatigue, the ability to focus and 
uh, not be distracted by fans on the sidelines or negative thoughts in your own head is is really challenging. And uh, trying to you know really be disciplined with you know uh, your form and how you're running at the end of a marathon or other long race is well, is even very a short race. I'd say think of like a five k um, because it's so much higher intensity. The last percentage of any race is when your body is most tired because you're trying to maximize your the most effort you can put in for that distance. So whenever people finish a 5K, you start to see people's arms flailing and they're losing form because they're they're trying to increase the intensity to just get the last amounts of energy they can possibly manage in their final section. And same with a, a marathon or, or an even longer race. So um, it, it's something that takes a lot of effort but i find it's actually quite useful for distracting yourself from the pain and the intensity because it's one thing to be thinking oh my legs are hurting and my lungs are busting it's another thing to go okay well let's keep the arms right let's keep my chest out let's keep my chin up um and and it just takes a little bit of the uh perceived effort away because you're distracted from the the intensity and the pain yeah that's what i call a productive distraction that's a good one yes now, what about your recovery? Did you, uh, how did you approach your recovery after such a challenging race like this? Uh, main thing was walking. So active recovery, walking is my, is my biggest thing with any training that I'm doing at any point. I'd actually say that this downhill marathon probably caused similar muscle damage and a similar feel for the next few days as running a hundred mile mountain race. Um, I'm usually two or three days later, I'm still kind of struggling with stairs, um, which was very much like the first time I did a marathon that it, it took, you know, a week or so to get back to walking normally. So the, now do, I, I, doing just a, a flat marathon, I'm back to normal kind of by the next day or two. So uh, because of that, I'm having to to ease back into my training a little bit more gently than I normally would. At this point, I am uh, four days away from the race. So I've uh, I did a little bit of weight vest hiking today because that was my easy transition with less impact force compared to running. And on five days, I'm going to probably try an easy test run, but uh, all the time, just trying to walk as much as I can, five or six miles a day, um, just to get the blood flowing around, to keep the legs from getting stiff and, and to aid that recovery, plus sleep, rest and recovery is, is the main part of it as well. Yeah, I think you just posted something on Twitter recently, if I'm not mistaken, about the value of walking as cross-training for runners. And I think it's a, a much more valuable approach for longer-distance runners, you know, people who are training for um, the marathon and beyond into ultra-marathon distances, especially if they're on trails, because trails usually are a slower surface for racing. And so spending a lot of time on your feet, even if you're not running, is actually a specific way to prepare for the demands of the race. And especially if you're looking at, you know, uh, 100K or 100 mile ultra marathon, you're going to do a lot of walking in a race like that. So it, it is beneficial to spend more time on your feet, spend more time walking so that you're getting all those specific benefits. And it's just free exercise. I mean, it's a way to burn off some calories to be a bit healthier. If you're going out for a walk, you're not sitting at home snacking while watching TV. Um, so it, it has a lot of kind of lifestyle benefits to it as well. But I, I'd argue it's just as useful for a sprinter because, like you said, you know, the things that damage your muscles the most are the most high intensity, high impact things. Anyone who's doing harder, harder uh, training sessions it helps to give your body a chance to get that active recovery. And walking is about the simplest thing you can do and also by far the most convenient thing you can do. Definitely. Now, I know we touched on this a little bit before, but I want to talk about your calf injury in March. Um, now, you said you were out for the entire month. Is that right? 
from running I was, but luckily I was able to hike. So I, I was still fitting in um, just at home, probably 20 plus miles a week of hiking, mainly with a weight vest. Um, and I also had a, a couple of trips in there that, uh, for races that uh, I was still able to get some benefit from. So one of them was uh, I'd, I'd aimed to do the LA marathon and I was going to try and break the, um, the Elvis world record. So Mike Wardian holds it at the moment. I used to hold it for a number of years and he, he uh, beat it in Vegas last year. So I needed to run under 238. Unfortunately, I couldn't even run at all. So I, uh, I ended up walking all of the LA marathon uh, and just doing a power hike the whole way because Firstly, it was all my calf could deal with. Also, I'd flown there and I paid for everything, so I wanted to enjoy it if I could and sightsee. Um, and it was actually just a, a good bit of practice for the ultras that I do, that to force myself to not run a step and to power hike for 26.2 miles um, was not mentally that easy, but uh, it, was, it was a good way to, to practice that kind of minimum speed that I can then hopefully keep up no matter how tired I get for the latter stages of a, a longer race. Um, so that was one thing. And then directly from there, I went to um, Zion National Park, where my shoe sponsor, Ultra, they had their annual summit. And so we had a whole load of, uh, for most people running, for me hiking, and we actually did the Zion Traverse, which is about 48 to 50 miles. Um, so I, I did that basically hiking every step. I That was the end of the month. So I was starting to feel like I could maybe test a tiny bit of running. So I maybe ran five or six miles of that, but not a whole lot. Um, but, but mainly just hiking through that and just getting in some good climbing. And this is all very consciously to help with both the leg strength for the downhill race, as well as to help with the, the mountain ultras I have coming up in summer. Yeah. I like how your recovery approach was, was focused on doing as much as you possibly could. That's not running. So you did a lot of walking, a lot of, uh, weighted, uh, hiking, and you did it in such a way that, you know, while it's not as specific as running, it is essentially cross training that's going to help not only your recovery, but it's also going to help your future races. So it had this element of rehabilitation and it had this element of actual training for the races that you're preparing for. But, but the priority was very much to heal first. If I felt like it was going to slow the healing, I wouldn't have done it. I'd have found other things to do that didn't cause any issue with the calf. And whenever anyone gets injured, uh, the first piece of advice is always focus on treating the recovery from the injury as your priority. Don't don't be trying to train within that context unless it is perfectly allowing you to still heal as well as you possibly can. Make make the number one thing to be healing as quickly as possible. And the number two is any training you can do that, that fits in with that first priority. And so this worked for me. Um, I was really glad it did. I was surprised actually I was able to hike fine. It was the only thing that hurt with the calf was when you get the push off when you're running. So that last tiny uh, push off from the the toes was where I had an issue. And when you hike, you don't have that same last bit because your next footstep, you've already landed before that point. While when you run, you're jumping into the air before the next footstep lands. So luckily that particular injury fitted in with hiking. But if it hadn't, I'd have had to, to maybe do you know cycling or, or swimming or something like that. Now, did you do any other more traditional types of rehab for your calf? You know, did you go to a PT? Were you doing exercises mm -hmm. for specifically? How did you approach that side of things? Yeah, so I, I get regular sports massage anyway. So I typically get one every for an hour, every one to two weeks. So I kept doing that so that they were able to just delve into it. And that was one of the things that made the biggest difference was when after about three weeks, I said, look, get in as deep as you can, because it doesn't seem to be badly injured i can hike as hard as i want but it just seems like there's some deep tightness that need to be worked on so 
I had a, a pretty painful massage that made a big difference. And, and from since that point, I've not had any problems with the calf. Um, and also, I, I do get a little bit of physical therapy that, that ties in with that occasionally. But massage is always my first choice. And then if there's something that that isn't helping with, I'll typically uh, then see someone who can manipulate things in a different way and, and examine it a little bit closer. Now, I have to ask Ian, how did someone who... You know, you've won Leadville multiple times. You you just ran a 221 on a very challenging downhill marathon course. How does someone like that injure their calf by going uphill a little bit too strongly? It shows that anyone can get injured at any point. And, and there's typically two main types of injury. There's a traumatic thing where it's just, you know, split second, you fall over, you break a leg, or you pull a muscle with one footstep that's too powerful or twist an ankle or something. And then the more repetitive types of injuries where regular uh, awareness of how your body is massage foam rolling etc is helping to minimize that plus the flexibility of altering your training the whole time and this was just one of those traumatic ones where i was just a bit of bad luck i must have just pushed it that little bit too hard through one footstep and it was enough to to strain it a little bit and then i it was an, a 10 mile race this was about two miles in and i kept running at the same intensity for the next two miles until the point where i literally couldn't um so uh I think I'm, I'm glad that I, I stopped when I did, but I didn't have much choice, but I kind of wish I'd have stopped earlier. But again, you, you never know with running, especially within the immediate minutes after an injury, unless it's really, really obvious. Um, you don't know, is that just a little bit of an ache and pain that you're going to get in your typical training runs and races, or is this more serious? So uh, unfortunately, this one was a bit worse, but it took me a couple of miles of it not going away before I realized that. Yeah, and I really like the distinction you made between the two types of injuries that runners can really suffer from. There's your repetitive stress injuries, your overuse injuries, and I think that's what most runners are familiar with. You know, it's your uh, IT band syndrome, your Achilles tendinopathy, those kinds of repetitive injuries that happen because, let's face it, running is pretty repetitive just by its very nature. We're doing pretty much the same thing over and over and over again. And so if we're not careful, you know, our body can break down. And then there's the traumatic side of things where, you know, if you are running on the trails and you trip and you land on a rock on your knee, that's a traumatic injury. I'd much rather see a runner get a, a mild traumatic injury than an overuse injury because at least mm -hmm. then it's not really caused by their training. Exactly. There's no underlying thing you've got to fix. Um, I, I would say that typically the ones that are more repetitive uh, will occur because you're doing something wrong in training. And it may just be that you're not doing enough maintenance work or you're not looking after yourself or you're not being flexible enough with your training. But they're the ones that are, it's possible to avoid or at the very least at the first hint of it to back off uh, and adjust things and potentially get some therapy and minimize the effect of it. While I, I think of the traumatic ones as kind of the bad luck injuries, you know, the tripping over, uh, getting hit by something, you know, anything like that. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, Ian, on, you know, the repetitive stress side of injuries. What are your some, what are some of your go-to prevention strategies for those more common injuries? I know you've mentioned massage. Is there anything else that you do in your training? Uh, and it, it can even be, you know, how you approach building mileage and things like that. I'd say that there's three other things. So the, the massage and, and foam rolling is definitely uh, a very important part of it because it helps you to have more of an awareness of how your body is feeling and if anything's changing. The other three things I would say are um, having flexibility in general that you, you react to how your body is, is training. So if you're 
as you go out the door, you should always know what the aim of each run is. And you've got to assess, is your body ready for that? So let's say it's a speed session, but your legs are dead and you haven't really recovered from the last one. Then you're probably not going to achieve the aim of what you're trying to do. So it makes more sense instead to to back off and say today is maybe more about recovery. And let's see if tomorrow is appropriate for that speed session. So that kind of flexibility and lack of rigidity is maybe a better way of thinking about it, because a lot of runners will say, here's my training plan for the next week. Um, I've got to fit these runs in. Otherwise, my mileage isn't high enough. And particularly people who want to hit a mileage goal for the week or there's only one day of the week they can fit a particular session in. It makes people less flexible to, to adjust that, even if they really need to. So that's one of the biggest reasons I'd say that, that people get injured. Um, I'd also say it's uh, important to, to change your shoes regularly. And I don't mean just buying new shoes. I mean, try and avoid using the same pair of shoes two days in a row. So every runner is going to have at least two pairs of running shoes. But uh, it's good to be able to vary that because it just creates very different stresses and strains on the, the lower body, on the calf, on the Achilles. And you've got to be able to... Um, get a more even workout down there and again minimize the amount of repetition that's occurring so that's a really important thing and, and they've shown i think there's a uh, scandinavian study a few years ago where um, just even having two identical pairs of shoes and switching between them rather than using the same pair every day it lowered the chance of injury by about a third so if you have even more variety in your shoes it should in theory have a, an even bigger benefit there of just making it less likely that you're going to pick up an injury uh, and then I'd say the third thing is trying to, again, on the variety side of things, which is kind of the common theme with all of this, is to try and vary the terrain and the styles of running you're doing. So don't just run the same route every day at the same pace, have different speeds, have different uphills and downhills and different uh, types of terrain in terms of mixing up trail and road. So even if you're only training for a road race, still include trails, still include hills, because it creates that variation that means that you're not getting as much repetition and less chance, therefore, of getting injured. And you're also building up different forms of strength that can really uh, come through really well towards the end of a race, particularly a longer race, so that you can maintain that form better. Wow, it sounds like we are cut from the same coaching cloth, Ian. That's pretty much... (laughs) One of, you know, those are some of my top suggestions for runners to prevent injuries, particularly the flexibility and variation side of things. You know, I think being flexible with your workouts and long runs and overall mileage is critical. You know, you have to really listen to your body rather than your training plan. And I've long said that a training plan is like a roadmap to your final destination. And you can certainly take a detour and still reach your final destination. And that's not going to have uh, necessarily a negative impact on, you know, whatever your goal race might be. You can still run fast. You can still finish the race if you have to modify some workouts and reshuffle runs around and, you know, maybe take a recovery week or a few more days off than planned. That's all fine. And, you know, ultimately the best workout for your body on any given day is what your body needs on that given day, not necessarily what your training plan says. Exactly. And it's uh, it's something that people, they can kind of get that concept. But then when it comes down to the practicalities of it, it's harder. If today you're going to have to miss out on that speed session, you really feel like you need that for the race that's coming up, even if it's moving just to tomorrow or the day after. So that flexibility is a difficult thing to to buy into. But when a runner thinks of it instead of, okay, here's my target race and here's the six months of training before it. And I did generally what I was aiming to do. And there were a couple of little blips in there where I got ill one week and I got ill. I had a minor injury that stopped me running for a few days, another point, but there's nothing significant. That is the important thing. And it's the flexibility that allows it to just be minor things along the way. 
um, rather than thinking that every workout is the most important one. And if you don't do this particular workout, then it's all screwed. It's much more the longer term build up to a race that makes a difference. And as soon as you can think like that, it's so much easier to say, okay, well, this week is probably not going to be an optimal training week, but I need to get back to those optimal weeks as soon as I can. And that mental shift is the important thing. Yeah. The other really interesting thing you mentioned was just varying your shoes. And, you know, as, as a runner myself, and then as a coach, it was something that I always practiced and recommended when there was no research or studies to support it whatsoever. It was just this intuitive thing that I experienced and, and I felt that was beneficial for runners. But then you're absolutely right. There was a study that came out a couple of years ago that showed, you know, runners who vary their shoes. And I didn't know that it was the same model of shoe. I thought it was two different models. Yeah, they, they found that even that alone is enough, that there's enough variation between a pair of shoes you've just worn that's been compressed a little bit and an identically made pair of shoes that hasn't just been worn, that that alone uh, lowers the chance of getting injured. But even more so, you'd expect from having shoes that are dramatically different. You don't want to do completely weird, you know, super cushion ones and then super uh, low drop ones or something that you don't need to go for extremes. You just need to have some variation in there. So I've got a lot of shoes, as I'm sure most runners <laughs> tend to have quite a big collection of shoes. Um, and so there's maybe about five different uh, models of shoe that I, I mainly wear but of each of those I've got at least a couple of pairs and I just try to make sure that I wear something that is like the least far the least most recently worn out of that group just for the sake of variety and also it helps if you're switching between trail and road that if you're on a trail you're probably going to wear a pair of trail shoes if you're on road you're going to be more likely to be in road shoes so speed session maybe it's a lighter pair longer run maybe a heavier pair with a bit more cushioning so there's a natural degree of variation in there anyway for most runners but purposefully doing it is is very meaningful too Right. I was just looking at an old training log from college and uh, I was writing I was writing an article about it. And the interesting thing was in one week, I wore five different pairs of shoes between a race, various workouts and easy and recovery runs. So uh, if if any of our listeners have more pairs of shoes than just one, which I'm pretty sure every runner does, then rotating through them. Uh, is really helpful for prevention because ultimately what we're trying to do is reduce the repetitive nature of running. And if we can do that, then we're going to get fewer repetitive stress injuries. Uh, so I, I really love that suggestion. And this is like a, a, a big um, further explanation from your contribution to our injury prevention uh, ebook that we put together a couple months ago. So thanks for giving us some some additional insights there, Ian. Well, it's because every runner deals with injuries at some point. It's guaranteed, and I think I heard that someone like half of runners pick up a, an injury during any given year. So anything you can do to minimize that, even if it's just changing the odds by a few percent, is worth doing, and especially when it's really simple, like uh, changing the, the terrain you run on, train, changing the types of run you're doing, changing the shoes. Um, the, it just makes it more fun as well because there's less uh, boring repetition elements to it as well. Absolutely. Now, speaking of fun, you mentioned earlier that you ran or I'm sorry, you walked the LA marathon in an Elvis costume. Let's talk about racing and costumes because you have a long history of this. You hold several world records, if I'm not mistaken, about, you know, racing in full costumes. Can you explain why you do this as a, a very professional, you know, competitive athlete? Sure. Yeah. Well, bear in mind, I, I've only really been um, kind of 
a sponsored runner for a few years and I, I got into running about 11 or 12 years ago. So um, when I first did it, I got really into doing marathons and I lived in London and it was very easy to travel all over Europe in particular to do other city marathons. So I was doing up to about 20 or 30 marathons a year for a few years. And because of that, there was a, a degree of, of repetition there. And again, for the sake of variation, I, uh, I I did some of them in costumes, mainly because the the London Marathon in 2007, they started partnering with Guinness World Records and they offered a thousand pounds for the fastest Elvis. To, so the first person to break the Elvis Marathon World Record, basically. And I thought, why not? You know, I had a marathon last week. I've got another one the week after. Why not just do this one a little bit different and maybe earn some money? So I, I bought an Elvis costume for that and, and got the record. And then uh, I saw that there was a guy in a Batman costume who'd got the superhero world record and he did like a five hour marathon. So I thought, why don't I break the superhero one? And, and the Edinburgh marathon was about a month later. So I did uh, Spider-Man at that, uh, that marathon and got that record. And then just for over the next few years, I think I've done about maybe 12 or 13 attempts at breaking these records and four separate records that I've broken, some of them more than once. So Elvis, uh, superhero, which has always been, in my case, Spider-Man, um, film character, which was Maximus from Gladiator. So I, I ran around Rome and by the Colosseum waving a little kind of plastic sword dressed as Maximus. Um, and then uh, Santa Claus I did one time as well. So it was just a way to, to make it a bit more fun and take some of the pressure off it having to be as quick as well. So it was a good way to mentally check out from the idea of every single one of those marathons being a maximum effort. Um, and then uh, I don't actually hold any of them anymore. So they've all been broken since. And that's why I was trying to get back the Elvis one um, in LA. But I'll give that another go at some point, either this year or next, because uh, it's just kind of a fun one to go for. And, and it's the one that I've done the most times. I've, I've broken it four times and I've had, I think, two other attempts where I didn't manage to break it. Now, what's your fastest marathon time while in a costume? Uh, 2.40 as um, Spider-Man. And I think two, <laughs> 2.42 maybe as Elvis. Or maybe, maybe, no, maybe both of them were 2.40, I think. Now, what kind of reactions do you get from people as you're running a 2.40, low 2.40 marathon wearing you know, either an Elvis or a Spider-Man costume. Are people on the sidelines thinking that you're crazy or what's the general reaction? A L- little bit of that. I mean, it, there's two dramatically different reactions you get. But now that I've, I'm known a little bit for having done this and if it's running a race fairly close to home, people have an idea that it might be me. So I, I did a, a 10 mile race about a month ago and I wore the El- I wore the Spider-Man costume. So even though I had a face mask on there, people knew it was me. So they're like, oh, hey, Ian, yeah, you're gonna have some fun in Spider-Man today. So when it's like that, they almost just think, yeah, that's just what Ian does. It's weird, but whatever. And then the other reaction is if you're at a big city marathon and you're at the start line and and particularly things like London where it's seeded. So you need to run a particular time to be in the the front area. Um, And then I've overheard people saying, oh, he's not going to, you know, we've got to beat him or he's not going to hold up this pace for more than a mile. Um, and I found that kind of amusing when I'm thinking, actually, you know, this is just the easy start. It's <laughs> mile one and I'm going at the pace that I intend to go at. So uh, it just people assume, though, that you must be uh, a bit of a joker if you're doing it and you can't be a serious runner, uh, which plays plays in my favor, because first of all, it, it, it gets you a bit more. Uh, it makes it a bit more enjoyable to do it and to surprise people and to surprise the crowds. Um, and it also uh, it's just a bit more entertaining when those same runners can't keep up with you and and then you you kind of hear them make another comment of oh he's actually managing to do this uh, we'll catch him at the end he's bound to slow down and then they don't 
<laughs> it's almost a, a kind of a perverse satisfaction when when you. It's they kind can't of keep funny, yeah. It. I mean, it, they, they definitely no one likes getting beaten by a costume because the assumption is that the runner can't be very good if they're doing it in a silly way. Um, but that that works in my favor in the fact that uh, it stops a lot of the genuinely serious, super fast guys from doing it. So Mike Wardian is probably the the one in particular who who tends to do this quite a lot, and so he's the one who has the Elvis record. Um, because he does, again, so many marathons, he's quite happy to mix it up. While most guys who are going to run 220 or 230, they're more likely to focus on two marathons a year, and they're going to give it their maximum effort, and they're not going to do anything that's going to compromise that, like wearing a costume. Right, right. Now, are you going after the Elvis record again this year? I was going to. I'm not sure I'm going to now. So I was going to do it in the uh, Vegas marathon, the rock and roll marathon in, in November. I think I might leave it till the following year because I've got a, a busy schedule of travel. So I, I, I'm, I'm happy to leave it a little bit longer, given that I just did a marathon in Vegas. And, uh, you know, that, that went well enough for me that that kind of checks that box for this year to some degree. Now, what are your other races coming up this year? Because I, I always love following your, your running career and seeing your results. You know, we met, uh, I think it was two days before Leadville last year. And then, you know, uh, I, I'll be honest, at the, at the time, I wasn't really familiar with you. And then two days later, our f- mutual friend, Scott, <laughs> let me know that you had, you had actually won the race. So uh, you've, you've made me a fan. And where, where can we see racing later this year? Uh, well, I'll be back at Leadville again, so it'll be my fifth year in a, in a row there. Um, I love that race. It's just a good excuse to go to Colorado, and it seems to suit me quite well, given that uh, the results have gone my way. And then um, Western States, a 100-miler in June is the other big one. So I've kind of got the, the summer very much focused around those 200-milers. Uh, this is my eighth year at Western States, so I, I just enjoy them, and, and I kind of like the element of of seeing if i can keep improving for one thing and also um with western states there's a 10-year buckle you get for for completing under 24 hours for 10 times so i'm kind of aiming for that and getting hopefully hopefully i can get my uh, my 10 uh, consecutive finishes all in the top 10 which uh i hasn't been done i think apart from by one guy uh in the 80s so uh it'd be kind of cool to to, to aim for that and it gives me a, a secondary aim like like do, doing a costume record in a marathon gives you the secondary aim of not just the time you're doing but also the record that you're going for it's nice to have different depths to to the races and, and it keeps me uh, me more engaged with it now let me ask you you you're recovering right now from this downhill marathon you just ran a really fast time you're experiencing soreness and fatigue that's more like a 100 mile ultra marathon than a marathon Yet you have another big race coming out coming up in June. What's your training going to look like between now and the the hundred in June? Um, a lot more trails because I've focused more on roads because I was training for road marathon. But uh, that weight vest hiking I've been doing, I'm going to be doing that day in day out, just a couple of miles, just to add that extra little bit of uh, active recovery and strength, and just trying to get in more vertical gain and and downhill as well um, through getting on the trails, which is much easier now because the snow is starting to melt. But I live at about three and a half thousand feet. The snow level is about four and a half thousand feet where I am. So I still can't really get into the hills that much. But there's a few good options that I'll take advantage of. So uh, it's very much focusing on on the specifics of that race and just getting my body used to the the hills. I think I've I've got some some good general fitness at the moment going into it and. Part of the reason that I want to do the marathon first was so that I would have more speed work 
initially and then as i get close to the 100 miler where speed is less relevant you're never going at marathon pace i i can then be more specific and hopefully get a little bit of a carryover from that speed work that i've done for the marathon so uh yeah it's mainly just it's kind of more fun training to be honest because you get to play in the trails and particularly from about after this race onwards i can get into the mountains properly in in oregon um but that doesn't help a whole lot for western states but it, it does for leadville the last time we talked about your training we did a a training snapshot of i think a two-week period before leadville last year uh you know if if our listeners are interested just go to strength running and search uh ian Sharman, and you'll see his training uh log up there but i'm curious you know you typically don't run super high mileage you know it's in the 70 no. 80 ish mileage range when you're getting ready for a hundred miler in kind of a compressed time period like you are now how quickly will your mileage build can you give us an idea on on how you approach that well, firstly, it'll depend on how my legs are recovering, because after a 100 miler, typically I'd, I'd have at least a couple of weeks of taking it very easy. And I can only really afford to take uh, I've got about five or six weeks from now before I'd have to start tapering for that race. So um, at the moment, I'm just going to see how I am this week and, and just ease back into it and put more of the bias towards the hiking side of things. And then I'll build that mileage up pretty quickly, because as soon as I feel like I'm recovered, I can go back to an 80 or 90 mile week. Um, and I'll probably have a couple of those maybe hit 100 miles we'll just see if i have enough time to do that and if my body feels good enough to do it but i don't feel like that is the most important thing it'll just be trying to fit in a good amount of time on my feet more of it at that kind of 100 mile intensity while still fitting in speed sessions and and i use that as a way to judge if i'm overdoing it that if i'm too tired to be doing the speed sessions or they're lower quality it means i'm probably trying to do a bit too much and i need to back off a bit so they uh, they don't only have the benefit of helping with the general um aerobic fitness but they also give me a very good check on on the amount that i'm doing and how appropriate that is now will you back down on the intensity or the volume or both um i would typically mainly back down on the intensity first because i can still go out and just hike for five hours and, and i know that that's not going to be very difficult for my body um but if i go out there and do a one hour speed session that's the stuff that's going to cause much more damage and, and uh, not be ideal if, if my body's not quite ready for it. So uh, I can hopefully do a bit more speed work, but I'm not as concerned about that. I really just want to get into a whole load of hiking and, and starting to do more running uphill and downhill, um, but at slower paces typically than I had been recently and on, on steeper gradients. Well, best of luck with all your upcoming races this year, Ian. It was a real treat to to chat with you today. Um, you know, you, you just... I think following your career is really exciting because you do do a lot of different types of races. You do a lot of races for fun and you don't necessarily see a lot of elite runners doing that. So it's fun seeing you race in an Elvis costume. It's fun seeing you do a downhill marathon with such crazy elevation change. And uh, I wish you the best of luck for Leadville this year. Maybe if uh, I'm up there again early, we can uh, officiate another a beer mile. Sounds fun. Yeah, no, I, I'm, uh, I, I think that no matter how much running is, in, how important it is in your life and how big a part it is, it's still got to be fun. So just doing different things is a big part of that for me personally, and it's something I advise anyone to do. Um, if, if I could win million dollar prizes for, for races, I'd probably be a little bit more focused. Um, but uh, virtually all the races I do have no prize money. So it's more um, that it enhances my knowledge about running and coaching and and I make my living as a, a coach. So uh, why not enjoy the running? And, and maybe it's not always the most optimum build up to a race, 
but it's more fun and fun is what will keep me doing it for 50 years rather than five years. And that is such a sustainable long-term approach to running that I think is going to give your career a lot of longevity. That's what I hope. Yeah. I mean, it's still fun for me 10, 10 plus years in and uh, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, again, thanks so much. We really appreciate your time, Ian. And finally, before we head off for today, I know a lot of other runners are probably going to want to learn more about uh, you and your racing and your coaching. Where can we learn more about Ian Sharman? Sure. Yeah. So my, uh, my coaching website, which has links to everything is shamanultra.com. So shaman, S-H-A-R-M-A-N. And, uh, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at shamanian. So at shamanian. Wonderful. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And there's our interview with the one and only Ian Sharman. I hope you take away some great insights from this. Maybe most importantly, to have fun with your training. If Ian Sharman can do it, so can we. And I also should mention, Earlier this year, I worked with Ian and eight other pro runners on an injury prevention project. I collected all of their best advice on staying healthy and recovering from workout to workout, and I put it all together in an easy download that you can get at strengthrunning.com backslash elites. There's an S on there. It's plural. Now, it's free. It includes other runners like Dathan Ritzenhine, World Warrior Dash champ Max King, Amelia Boone, and quite a few others. Get your copy at strengthrunning.com slash elites. I hope you enjoy it. And once again, thanks so much for listening and being part of the Strength Running community.